You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you to Freedom of Species. Back next week from 1 p.m. If there's something you missed from that program or you want to hear a bit more, head to the website 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Freedom of Species program page. And from there, you can subscribe to their podcast, follow them on social media, visit their website and keep in touch with them which is what you can do with any program or many of the programs here on 3CR, uh, including our own. Please do find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, because you'll find a lot of complimentary material to what you hear on the program. My name is Nick, and uh, this is a show about the complex interactions between the altered states caused by plants, synthesized chemicals, and uh, fungi that people have been using in a, different, in a variety of different ways. Uh, for thousands of years it's the bedrock of medicine now modern medicine it all comes from there and all illicit substances we seek to explore the human issue of desiring altered states first and foremost that's our, that's our focus but the policy of prohibition um which is a relatively recent uh, social and political response to uh policing altered states uh is what we end up discussing because that's where we are that's where we are in australia uh, today we neither condone nor condemn people for their choices that's really up to you what you want to do it's your body it's your life uh we do believe that prohibition as a policy for reducing drug related harms in society has failed and that new options must be explored so on today's program um we're going to be focusing on one of the many issues that we uh constantly have brought to our attention and that is our current roadside drug testing program You'll be hearing voices from the members, uh, from member of the Legislative Council for the Reason Party, Fiona Patton, member for the Legislative, Legislative Council for the Liberal Democrats, David Limbrick, Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, Greg Denham, and PhD student researching roadside drug testing with the University of Sydney, Thomas Arkell. Um, before we dive deep into the roadside drug testing issue, and actually before we get even there, uh, later in the program, we'll also be getting an update uh, on from one of the residence groups, because there are a few of them now, in the North Richmond area uh, on the supervised injecting room. That's a bit later in the program, but uh, first up, we caught up with Fiona uh, about an introduction of a bill uh, that she's put together this week into Victorian Parliament to ensure that those using medical cannabis do not uh, lose their licence because of the medicine that they use. cannabis that has been prescribed to someone should not be covered by our drug driving laws. So currently, if, you, if you're if you on prescription medication and it comes up in a roadside test, if you've got a prescription for that medication and you're not impaired, then you are not breaking the law. However, if you've got a prescription for medicinal cannabis, and you drive and you are not impaired and you get picked up on a roadside blood test, you are breaking the law. So it's just, it's bringing, it's just bringing the law into line, I think, um, and bringing our medicinal cannabis laws in, into line with the rest of our prescription medication um, because it's, not being able to drive is proving a real barrier 
for medicinal cannabis patients. It's a very um, sensible and pragmatic thing to do, but on the other side of it, we have this roadside drug testing uh, program <laughs> uh, that is perhaps anything but sensible and pragmatic. And, and you mentioned, I mean, yeah, pre- prescribed cannabis, we, we uh, certainly want people that have prescribed medicines uh, and aren't impaired to be able to drive. But um, one of the biggest class of prescribed substances, is benzodiazepines, is anti-anxiety, um, Zolo, uh, Zoloft, Xanax, all those sorts of things. Um, many people are on these. They can be quite impairing. And they're not at all tested for in our roadside drug testing program. It's a schmozzle. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, we yes, we are, we are in this. Uh, I, I think actually, I, I heard the commissioner on another radio station, the police commissioner this morning, actually admit that their roadside drug testing was not perfect and it was actually very prob- was problematic. Well, um, uh, I wonder so what will come of that. Yes, well, that's right. But I think there certainly does seem to be some um, uh, understanding from the government and understanding from the department, transport department, that really it's not right to to prohibit someone who is on medicinal cannabis from driving when they are not impaired. And, you know, I heard this tragic story of this young man. He's had epilepsy all his life. He's on a... You know, high CBD, low THC uh, oil, and he has not had seizures for six months, which means for the first time in his life he qualifies to drive. He could go and get his driving licence, but he can't because he's on medicinal cannabis. Only because, yeah, gosh. Which is stopping the seizures, which was getting him to the point that he could drive. Wow, so, that's <laughs> some kind of catch-22 scenario there, isn't yeah, it? It's ridiculous. It's so, it's so mean. Um, so I first read the bill to just put that small amendment in that um, adds medicinal cannabis, um, treats medicinal cannabis when you have a prescription uh, as like any other prescription medication. And I, I, think it's, I think it's sensible. But you're right, there is a whole other um, conversation to be had about the roadside testing and what... What, what it's doing, what it's achieving. and It's a conversation yeah. that you've already contributed to as, um, as a member of Victorian Parliament. Mm. Uh, you, you've been overseas, you've seen some of the devices that are used. I mean, well, what, are, what are the other jurisdictions doing around uh, roadside drug testing and, and, and trying to you know, improve road safety? Yeah. What about in the end? I, mean, I think one of, the, one of the go-to solutions is trying to, is trying to treat medicinal cannabis um, like alcohol, and setting up a kind of a per se limit, which I think in like Germany and in other jurisdictions it's set at sort of five nanograms um, per something. Uh, what we know, and I certainly, if, um, <clears throat> what we know from the experts is that that is actually not a very, it's not very good science. It doesn't actually stand up. It's very good politics. It's very easy. To, to make to treat cannabis like alcohol in that regard, it's um, it's a very simple way of doing it, but it's not it's not correct. That's for sure. Mm. Well, it's, it um, it ends up uh, entrapping us as well because it, it sort of has that allure of uh, oh, it's like roadside breath testing. We know that if you're drunk, it's hard to drive. You get a crashy car, so we want to improve right. road safety. But then we end up that's spending right. millions on something that perhaps doesn't 
perhaps it even declines road safety. I, I, I probably can't say that, but I don't think it's uh, improving it a whole lot. I mean, sure, if you re- remove a bunch of drivers from the road, you're probably going to stop them from, uh, well, doing anything on the road, <laughs> having an accident, getting to work. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> If they're not driving, exactly, they're going to be relatively safe. You're absolutely right. I I agree, and you know there there is there is a lot of conversations around impairment testing, and there has actually been some good work done on devices that can test impairment fairly easily. But a lot of a lot of the US uh, jurisdictions are just relying on good old walk the line, touch your nose um, with a finger, with your eyes closed, and and various other sort of tests, and if people can't pass those tests, then they will be taken in for more extensive testing. Um, but I think some of the evidence that we're finding from the roadside testing is not only does it not test for um, impairment, but quite often people who are impaired do pass the test. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's not necessarily making things safer when we know that it doesn't actually pick up for impairment. So if you took a high-quality CBD oil, a THC oil, in a um, capsule, uh, you'd be unlikely to get picked up on a saliva test. Hmm. Very unlikely. Thomas Arkell is part of a research team who have this week published their findings on the drug tests used by Victoria Police in the roadside drug testing program. More on that a bit later. Thomas did explain to us uh, that the roots of administration for cannabis commonly cause these tests problems. Uh, also, sorry about the audio quality on Thomas's line here. He's in Amsterdam at the moment, and apparently there's lizards in the uh, phone lines between here and there. If you consume THC through a capsule, and so long as the THC doesn't actually come into contact with your mouth, you won't have any THC in your saliva. Uh, if you take a suppository, you won't have any THC in your saliva. It's only if you consume cannabis in such a way that it actually comes into physical contact with your mouth. So you could take, uh, I mean, you could take 50 milligrams of THC in a, in a capsule um, and be you know, absolutely off your head, but have absolutely no THC in your saliva. On the health.vic.gov website for the FAQs on medical cannabis, when um, they answer the question about driving, the, the advice they give is, I quote, as there is little evidence or guidance available about the recommended period of time between consuming TAC and driving, it is recommended that patients do not drive or perform hazardous tasks such as operating heavy machinery when taking THC containing medicinal cannabis products in addition, it is a criminal offence in Victoria to drive with THC present in your saliva, blood or urine. Patients should discuss the implications for safe and legal driving with their doctor. <laughs> so, right. so essentially what that, I mean, what that says to me is, is in line with the, the discussion that we're having. At the moment, medical cannabis patients are essentially presented with an option of uh, being healthy or being mobile. Um, yeah, that's but right. The, the question is, how are, if, if people are being referred to their doctors for advice about when it's safe to drive, how is that going to work if your bill's passed and um, it, it's treated like other prescription drugs, but doctors really don't know how to provide mm. advice about driving? Doctors um, say to their, 
patience. Don't drive if you're feeling impaired. Right. And you and I, um, generally speaking, uh, know when that's the case. Mm. Yep. You know, we, we know that we shouldn't be driving. Um, so I, I think it's, it's actually a bit of common sense there, Ash, that, you know, someone wakes up in the morning, they, they had some... They had some cannabis the night before to help them with sleep, to help them with anxiety, to help them with pain. They wake up in the morning feeling fresh because they've had a good night's sleep. They know they're not impaired. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And if we had a little common sense in this, guy, wouldn't it be a bit better? Hey, uh, Fiona, yeah, what's what's the um, just just before we let you go? Um, do, is it likely to get any opposition this bill, or is it going to pass fairly easily with support? Do you think? Um, look, we're, we're still a way away from that, I'm afraid. I've, I'm talking to the government and certainly um, I've been speaking to the Transport Department about this. They are, um, they are actively investigating this and trying to find a solution. So I, I think we've got a... Um, we're repealing the Victorian Medicinal Cannabis Bill uh, when we come back um, at the next sitting, sitting because it's largely obsolete now that we've got the Federal Act, uh, that may be another opportunity to provide some, to get some amendments up um, <clears throat> in this regard. It certainly is another opportunity for the government to, to do some work in this area. So I think there is some, there is some understanding from the government that, that what we're doing now isn't doesn't work. Mm, yes, thank you. Thank you for keeping this issue, keeping the momentum on this issue, Fiona. And uh, I think uh, roadside drug testing uh, has a little bit more to go yet, I suspect. <laughs> well, it certainly does, yes. Thanks for joining us on Thanks. the Psychedelia. Thanks, guys. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Fiona. Bye. Fiona Patton, leader of the uh, Reason Party in Victoria and, and around Australia, uh, and Upper House member uh, for the Northern Metropolitan Region. Uh, this is in Psychedelia. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. And now we're welcoming to the program Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnership, who is a former police officer and has decades of experience in drug policy. Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nick. Thanks very much. Uh, Greg, this week uh, we've seen some discussions about roadside drug testing. Um, There uh, was some research that came uh, out of... From the University of Sydney, the Lambert Initiative, which is uh, kind of a a, a cannabis research initiative that do do research into medical cannabis and other issues uh, to do with cannabis. And they've just done a a study that's been published in Drug Testing and Analysis, which is a, a journal on those sorts of issues, testing the two devices used most commonly by police here in Victoria. That's the SecureTech drug wipe. That's the little licky stick that um, you've probably seen because they're spending more and more tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars on these things and trying to get them out um, all over the place. And the Draiga drug test 5000, which I believe is the bigger, fancier machine. Is that right? 
Uh, yeah, it's the secondary. It's the in between so one. Oral saliva test that they do. They keep in, that in, in your the in bus. your bus. So when they when they've got a positive on your licky stick, then you have to go to the driger. Uh, anyway, these are the things that have been uh, researched because uh, there's a few few issues um, with this technology, uh, as Ian McGregor uh, and the uh, researchers at the University of Sydney have found. Um, these are not issues that we're unaware of. It's issues that have been discovered in other parts of the world where similar technology uh, has re- had research done and now we've had research done on the technology that is currently being used by Victoria Police and it's shown uh, a number of problems, false positives, false negatives uh, and and this this is something, um, this is a test that we're currently using to remove people uh, from the roads. Uh, now, um, Greg, the, the policing on this and, and the rhetoric around it has been strong. It's all been about how this is about road safety. Uh, I mean, why? What what's going on? It's... It, they, they seem to have a, a bit of a problem with the with the truth in this matter, or do you think that they genuinely believe it's about road safety? Uh, look, I think there's a number of issues here, Nick, which we need to um, carefully look at. And this is, uh, this is again, one of these questions that um, has been raised about, uh, I guess, the integrity of uh, the policing of these, um, these types of offences. If you look back at the history around the introduction of these laws, um, you know, I think it's probably 15 years ago now that they were controversial when they were brought in because up until about 2004, police had to actually demonstrate that a person was impaired by a drug. And once these new laws came in for drug testing, police don't have to show impairment anymore. All they have to do is show the presence of certain drugs. So it immediately immediately calls to question uh, the validity of, of the, these laws around... You know, people who um, have had some exposure to a drug at some stage, and and because of that, they are immediately, um, you know, uh, have a, a license suspended. Now, the police argued at the time, well, all, all we um, all we have seen is that you know we have we have now um, some uh, you know some evidence that there are some people who are involved in um, fatal car crashes who do have some presence of a drug in their system. Nothing was ever shown that actually stated that drugs caused the accident, but what happened was that the, the, the testing procedures um, became a bit more sophisticated, and once they started to identify certain drugs in people's system, they then immediately made a quantum leap to say, oh, well, that's causing the accident, so therefore we need to have new laws which enable us to um, you know, test people a lot quicker and, and demonstrate to people that uh, you know you can't have a drug in your system uh, because it might might cause an accident. So a lot of this is kind of supposition. There's no really hard evidence that um, uh, drug drugs in a person's system are causing accidents. So it's it's one of these one of these policing strategies which is kind of low hanging fruit, net widening, demonstrating that they're doing something about the drug problem. And it's more about show rather than actual um, factual evidence supporting it. And uh, this this new research doesn't surprise me at all that the system itself is flawed and uh, and it supports um, you know the the experience that many people have had, which suggests that this whole drug testing program really um, is is um, you know uh, is, is a failure. And, and it needs to be stopped. Thomas and the team at the University of Sydney took the two currently used devices for roadside drug testing uh, by Victoria Police uh, and tested just how accurate these devices are.
Their results showed that the current roadside drug testing program is in urgent need of review for its efficacy. Otherwise, we could be spending millions of dollars uh, wasted. So we found quite a few issues with these two devices. Um, so as you mentioned in the introduction, we had quite a lot of cases uh, that were false positives. So the test came back positive, but when we analyzed the sample later, it had less than... Uh, uh, maybe I'll jump back for a minute. So these devices will have a detection limit. So there's a certain amount of THC that they're sensitive to. So in our case, the devices, have, they have a 10 nanogram per mil THC cutoff. So it means if you have more than 10 nanogram per mil THC, they'll come back positive. Uh, and if you have less, less than 10, they'll come back uh, negative. So we had these cases of false positives where, um, you know, the test results came back positive. But then when we actually analyzed the sample later, um, people had less than 10 nanogram per mil. Um, we saw that 5% of the drug wipe test results were false positives, uh, and 10% of the Draeger test results were false positives. Um, we also have a number of false negatives, where the devices came back uh, negative, uh, even though people actually had quite a lot of THC in their saliva. So they're going both ways. Um, and in that case, I think we had 16% uh, of the drug wipe results were false negatives, uh, and 9% of the drug test uh, results were false negatives. So they, these are, you know, fairly high numbers, um, especially getting up to 16%, you know, that's uh, one in every sort of six or so samples. That's an incorrect result. Um, these tests do go on to get analysed later, uh, you know, and, and confirm that THC is actually in there. But these things are expensive. You know, as you say, the, the um, Securitec devices yeah, $25 to $30 to buy it commercially. The Draeger is a little more expensive. Uh, for us, they're closer to $40 to buy. And then the, the cost of actually going on and doing the confirmatory analysis, um, we expect it to be about a, hundred, a couple of hundred dollars. Um, and if the police are planning to conduct 200,000 tests of these, uh, 200,000 tests, you know, in, in 2020 in New South Wales, that's... You know, that's an expensive program, um, considering that there are these issues with the devices that people aren't really sort of talking about, the police aren't really addressing this. I can understand from the perspective of the police that there might be an appeal having something that, you know, is just ten or five, five or ten minutes with the, the licky sticks. Um, so there must be that appeal. But you explaining as well that impairment testing, gosh, it sounds a lot more careful and considered, doesn't it? Careful, considered policing oh. sure sounds a lot better than what we have now. Of course. Of course. You know, and, and look, part of, part of um, that original process was the recognition that there may be people out there driving whilst impaired by drugs. And that's that's something which we do need to be mindful of. of Absolutely. Course, we need to be mindful of that. Um, but this sort of net widening exercise really is about sending that message. This is one of these strategies that police use to send a message to the broader community. Um, and it's the same as drink, um, drink driving, you know, drink driving 0.05. It, it's, you know, the, the message that police are sending with this is that if you have a substance or you may have used a substance or you may have been exposed to a substance, particularly drugs, and if you're not even impaired by it, there's a good chance that you will be picked up by the police. So in other words, it's also sending a message about not taking drugs. It's also a message about mm -hmm. saying, well, you know, we, we believe drugs are illicit, therefore they're harmful. 
So therefore, even if you've had an exposure um, a little while ago or, um, you know, you, you haven't used that for a while, you will get picked up by the police if you're driving. So it's sending that message out there. There's a high chance of you <coughs> being tested um, by the police and you being found positive and therefore losing your licence. And I might add, too, that, you know, the... the Information that I have about the drugs and driving um, offences has basically demonstrated that there are hundreds of people losing their licences, people who are um, quite active in the community, business people, tradesmen and uh, and other workers who are now losing their licences um, because of this legislation, who really have done nothing wrong. All, all they've done is come up with a slight impairment, or a slight, sorry, a slight um, positive um, reading on a... Um, on a drug test and they haven't been impaired. So, you know, it, it's a net whitening exercise which is having a significant impact on the community. Drug testing of drivers is an issue all over the world. For those parts of the world experimenting with legalisation of substances like cannabis, it's quickly become apparent that new ideas are needed on how to detect whether or not somebody is impaired behind the wheel and keep our roads safe. Part of Thomas's PhD has taken him to the Netherlands, where he is looking more closely into how different cannabinoid levels correlate with motor impairment. The work that I'm currently working on is more more work looking at um, the actual real-world effects of cannabis on driving. So I'm currently in the Netherlands, where we're running a, a follow-up study to a, a related study to this one we just published, uh, where we're giving people different doses or... A d- different types of different strains basically um, that vary in their THC and CBD content and looking at how they're actually affecting real world driving. So we measure driving performance over 100 kilometers on the highway. Uh, We also take blood samples and things like this so we can get a better uh, idea of is there a relationship between how much THC is in your body and whether you're impaired or not. And at the moment there's quite a body of evidence to suggest that's not the case. Cannabis is tricky because there is generally a really poor relationship between the amount of THC in your system and whether you're actually impaired. So I, I think in terms of the future for this roadside drug testing situation, it's like we we have quite a lot of evidence already um, that there is basically no relationship between the amount of THC in your system and whether you're okay to drive or not. I don't know if we can possibly provide any more evidence that would convince the police uh, of that and you know it's not like anyone uh, is advocating for allowing impaired drivers to be on the road Uh, but personally of course but what we'd like to see is a system that's uh, fair and a place to I mean my ideal situation with them uh, would be for them to come and go okay so there are these issues what could we be doing instead that would be a better system instead of this sort of point blank it doesn't matter we're just looking for presence uh, which is the current approach. Um, I was just in Canada a couple of weeks ago for a conference, and they have quite an quite an interesting approach there. As you know, you know they've just recently legalized it, and the way it works now is that police can use these oral fluid tests um, as uh, as a, a like a in order to get grounds for suspicion or like reasonable cause so that they can then go on and see if that person's actually functionally intoxicated. So they might pull someone over, do a... If it's positive, then all that does 
give them the ability to then go, okay, uh, let's pull you into the van or, uh, and let's do a few other tests and, you know. The, the whole point of why we do it the way we do it is based around a psychological theory of deterrence. And so that's essentially trying to create this fear that you could get caught anywhere so you, you'd better comply with the law. Um, the problem as I see it is that because of the problem where people have a fear of getting detected when they're not actually impaired, it essentially makes compliance impossible. And so, uh, you know, I feel that, that the way that they've framed the policy is unworkable. But if you if you want to understand the policy, that document really lays out the, the framework. And this is a document that's it's a national strategy. So all of the police and the, the agencies like the TAC here in Victoria, you know, the roads ministers, the police ministers, they all kind of get together. And, and this is the, the shared idea of how we're going to tackle the issue of um, accidents that may have some relationship to drug impairment, which is a legitimate problem. So the, 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 the problem that they're trying to tackle is a real problem of, um, you know, drug affected drivers being involved in serious accidents. That's something that I think we can all agree is a problem worth addressing. But the way that they're addressing it, it really, it seems to not care if, if people are impaired or not, because the overall, um, <clears throat> the overall approach, it's not about punishment, it's about trying to uh, alter behaviour. And so, you know, the, the sort of subtext of that document is if a few, you know, if a few innocent people are caught up, that's a worthwhile uh, sacrifice to make to achieve behaviour change. <clears throat> uh, look, and that's a good point, um, Ash, because... Um you know, we heard this recently about the, in the Gobbo Royal Commission uh, that police have the attitude now that the end justifies the means. And uh, you're right, it, it's a net-widening exercise. It's designed to send a strong message to the community deterring um, drug use uh, across the board. And, of course, when you're driving a car, people who drive cars, it's kind of a captive audience. You, you know, you, you are at the mercy of the state um, when you are driving a vehicle. And... Uh, it's, it's a very easy process for police to to really deal quickly with people and um, and I just show that show that sort of um, defiance around deter and their determination to you know send a strong message out there um, which is anti you know um, drugging. So it, it, it's you know this, that that sort of um, read, the, the stuff that you were reading before is is very supportive of this notion that um, police really just, you know, see the issue as being one which um, and it would um, capture people that really, you know, for, um, for no other reason just happen to be get, get caught up in the net. Is, I mean, there, there is a, a, a strange kind of logic um, behind this um, net widening uh, when it's when it's sold on, oh, but if if one life is saved, you know, you can kind of use that rhetoric, one life is saved, then oh, shouldn't it 
shouldn't it be okay? Like, how do we how do we um, talk back to this um, idea that we can have uh, we can use technology to because it's not just this area that we're using technology to be invasive and almost do pre crime type um, type things. Nothing's actually happened. Somebody wasn't impaired. Somebody wasn't dangerous on the drugs. But it's almost like there's that potential because other people who had drugs in their system uh, had a correlation with a accident. So maybe you could have been dangerous. And we see this with some of the uh, encroaches into our online privacy and things like that. Like, oh, maybe you were saying something a little bit sus. I mean, how do we how do we push back against this, do you think? Look, it, it's really, really difficult. And, uh, you know, we, we're seeing this through the federal government legislation around, um, you know, um, testing of um, New START recipients when it comes to, um, you know, drug use. And, uh, you know, we still haven't heard what the case is for the introduction of this policy. You know, it seems to me that this is, again, another um, opportunity where you've kind of got a captive audience. And we, um, you know, the government decided that, um, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll enforce policy on them, which really has no basis. There's, there's no justifying evidence. There's no case that I, I can hear that, that says, oh, people on Newstar, they're all using drugs and, you know, they're wasting our money and uh, so, therefore, you know, we need to crack down on them. There's, there's no supporting evidence, there's no case here, you know, for the introduction of this policy. So, again, it's, it's one of those audiences that, are, you know, um, <clears throat> have been identified as being vulnerable um, and easy to impose policy upon them. I think it's really challenging to, to um, you know, to push back against this because, um, you know, it's, it's research which, which has been raised, you know, which we talked about earlier, which, which helps... To, um, you know, helps to raise questions about this. Um, and look, you know, the other um, the other um, piece of evidence which we heard recently, you know, maybe 12 months ago, was about the police and the um, alcohol testing. You know, uh, falsifying hundreds of thousands of you know positive um, alcohol tests. So I mm. guess so. We need to keep questioning. We need to keep asking about the research and 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 pushing back politically. Politically about this, because it's only about it's only um, through political pushback that we would actually get somewhere with these types of um, you know this questioning this type of um, you know policy approach. And um, as we're just about to wrap up, Ash, is there anything um, you wanted to mention from your readings? Well, I think one of the things that I found looking into some of the big international research projects and some of those looked at the SecureTech and the Draeger devices that are used here, they're just not reliable enough to do what the police are trying to do with them. You know, and, and I know that the police commissioner's priority is trying, and this is a priority of the whole National Drug Driving Working Group, is to try and get a, a technology that can confirm somebody's drug use at the roadside. But to do that, you need to find some way to actually address the issue of whether or not they're impaired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's where, where it really comes back down to. I, I do feel like technology has made um, a lot of uh, governance and policing and all sorts of issues. We're just touching on a couple of them, but all sorts of issues, lazy policy, uh, lazy messaging. There's no no evidence um, that, that backs up a lot of these policies that get introduced. But because we have the technology and because we have, you know, even the, the power of the internet now, we 
we we kind of just accept these things, and I think it's a it's a a dangerous way that we're heading because it's just going to engender mistrust in the community. Uh, it's it's going to distort relationships and make uh, things like policing and governance more difficult um, for those that are trying to do it because they don't they won't be able to have that that community support that those things rely on. I, if I can just sort of jump in there as well, Nick, and look, I think if you sort of cast your mind to the future, um, what you can see happening is, is that these types of, this type of testing will also um, be implemented in you know, a range of um, situations um, when you know, uh, we then have people who are in a, in a sort of captive audience um, environment. Um, I can quite easily see... You know, um, government saying, well, you know, what we should be doing is we should be drug testing everyone that leaves the country or drug testing everybody that comes into the country through, through customs uh, and immigration. Um, you know, so this drug testing um, process will, um, I think, only expand in the future. And I can see it, um, you know, being introduced to, um, you know, a range of sort of settings and environments where, you know, there's, there's federal and state government policy or opportunities and, uh, and and kind of follows you know other types of policies which really do sort of you know send a message around not only the the, the power of government but also um, restricting freedoms and, and rights uh, and opportunities to you know um, you know to, to have a choice about you know what 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 sort of drug you use but also um, you know um, impede the progress of um, drug policy reform. And I think that this is one of the, the pushback strategies is to push back against drug policy reform. You know, this is this is going to push it the other way and it's that sort of, you know, policy opportunities that governments are looking at now to, to fight back, so to speak, against drug policy reform. Greg Denham, thank you for joining us on In Psychedelia today. Thanks, Nick. Greg Denham is from Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And if you want to find out more about uh, Greg's work, the website is... Uh, oh, Greg, the website, leap.net.au? <laughs> .net.au. .net, yeah. It's a, .orgs, .coms, and this one's a .net. Uh, L-E-A-P.net.au. Thanks, Greg. Hello, thank you. You're listening to 3CR. Music on 3CR is the best. You're listening to 3CR. And now on the line we have David Limbrick, who is the member for the South Eastern Metropolitan Region. That's correct. Yes, good, good, in the Upper House and the Victorian Parliament and uh, part of the Liberal Democratic Party. David, welcome. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, now, we've been speaking a lot about roadside drug testing. This week, some research came out from the Lambert Initiative um, in uh, in Sydney, um, which tested the devices that Victoria Police currently use, the, the licky stick that they currently use, and found that they're they're a bit lacking in terms of uh, uh, being effective at doing the job that uh, the police tell us uh, they're meant to do. Um, so, and we've also got a petition up. You've uh, you've uh, co-sponsored the petition um, for me uh, to calling for an inquiry into our roadside drug drug testing program. Um, what and uh, also this week, uh, Fiona Patton introduced a bill um, around medical cannabis patients. So, where's your head at with all this roadside drug testing stuff that's going on, David? Okay, so um, I'd like to say at the outset that. Um, uh, 
I have no objection in principle to enforcement of people who are impaired by drugs being taken off, off the road. There's, I have no problem with that. The problem that we have with the system at the moment is there is a limitation with the technology, which I'm sure you're aware of, in that the technology tests if you've got drugs in your system, but not necessarily that you're impaired. Now, with um, blood alcohol concentration testing, the, the link between blood alcohol and impairment is, is fairly widely, fairly well supported by science. It's um, well understood by the community. You know, if you're over 0.05, there's a good chance that you shouldn't be driving. But with these tests, what's happening is someone had a joint, you know, a day ago, a couple of days ago, and then they go and drive, and then, um, you know, they're not impaired, but they've still got some cannabis in their system and they're getting pinged. Now, um, from my point of view, this is a total injustice. Um, there, there is a, a problem with the system, um, and, and it needs to change. Have you been hearing any uh, stories from constituents about direct effects uh, of of uh, this on people who um, say that they weren't impaired and, uh, I mean, obviously they still get the charge because it's not an impairment charge, but how it's Correct. actually affected people uh, and their lives? Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of lots of effects of this. So, you know, you have the direct effect of, of you know, if you live in a regional area, this can be a, a catastrophic catastrophic, uh, have a catastrophic effect on your life. You know, if you, if you live in the city, maybe it's not so bad. You can get the trains and Uber and stuff around. But if you live out in the country, this can really, really, you know, you can lose your job and all sorts of things. It's a really catastrophic effect. But on top of that, you've got these other um, unintended effects, right? Because people, I think in general, people want to comply with the law. I think people... Uh, People accept the idea that they shouldn't be driving when they're when they're impaired by drugs and alcohol, and they want to comply with these laws. But of course, people uh, are in a situation now where they can't really comply with the law because the law doesn't test for impairment; it tests for these drugs. And then you get these other problems, like you know, people are, are uh, avoiding testing. They're, they've got drug substitution happening where they're switching to other drugs that clear their system, but those drugs might be more dangerous. Um, we've got all these sorts of unintended consequences. So I'd I'd really like some changes to the way that enforcement is done so that uh, it reflects impairment and not just that you've you're a drug user effectively and I think the only thing holding this up is the general impression that the drug testing regime is the same as the blood alcohol testing regime and uh, I think what we're doing is we're talking to lots of people and I think now that we're seeing um, articles in the newspaper that awareness is growing that these things are not the same um, and the technology is not the same and um, there's problems with the technology that need to be addressed. Do you think we need um, new technology or should we be looking back to something like uh, uh, empowering police to do basic impairment testing again and maybe uh, focusing more on that? Yeah, well, we, we've um, actually asked questions in Parliament about, you know, there is impairment testing that the police can do, right? And we, we discovered through our questioning that there's 800 police that are trained to do impairment testing. And this is like, you know, the old-fashioned testing that you would expect, you know, you walk in a straight line, touch your nose, that's the way your eyes close, that sort of thing that tests if you're impaired. Now, these are very rarely used. We found out through questioning that they're really only used about 200 times. So you consider that, you know, your 800 police officers, they've only used it 200 times in a year. It's um, not, not very well used. Now, I think one of the reasons is that um, the they don't use these a lot and is because the evidentiary requirements for 
using uh, this sort of testing and presenting it in court are quite uh, burdensome, which is why most people who get charged with drug driving offences do not get charged with the drug driving while impaired. They get charged with the lesser uh, drug driving only offence, which doesn't... Uh, doesn't accuse them of impairment, it just accuses them of having drugs in their system. What I would like to see, I think, and you know, we're doing a bit of research to see if there's problems with this, but what I would like to see is maybe uh, an enhanced enforce enforcement regime where impairment testing can be done as a hurdle to the, the licky stick testing, right? So, you know, you do an impairment test that confirms, all right, there's something uh, wrong with this person's ability to drive, they're impaired. Then you, then you can do the licky stick test and say, all right, well, they have drugs in their system and they're impaired. So I would, be, I would feel much more comfortable with that sort of regime where there is clear evidence of impairment rather than just drugs in their system. I think, you know, if you have a test for impairment and a test for drugs in their system, that seems uh, reasonable to me that um, you know they, they should be suffering those penalties if they're in that state but just the licky stick by itself it's problematic because it's and there's another problem with the licky stick in that it, it's not picking up some drugs as well like it's only it's only looking for amphetamines cannabis and MDMA so we have other drugs that we know of that cause severe impairment like benzodiazepines and opiates they're not being tested for at all so um, you know, this sort of old-fashioned, you know, touch-your-nose type uh, impairment test might pick up some of those people who are actually impaired and being missed by the current uh, enforcement regime. And that's, I mean, this has been the common thread with, with everyone that we've spoken to on this issue over um, months, years. Everybody wants safety on the roads. Nobody wants impaired people on the roads. Nobody wants yep. people that are affected um, under the influence by any kind of substance to be behind the wheel of a one ton metal that hurdles down the road 100 kilometers an hour nobody wants that we're all in agreement of that and i really like that idea of because uh, essentially what you're saying is is switch it around at the moment we're using a device um that that uh, has a result on it and we're saying well that's enough to remove you from the road for road safety uh, and you're suggesting maybe we focus on the impairment aspect uh first and foremost and then if we think somebody's impaired then we test because then you can probably layer on the charges if somebody is you know really uh gone out of their way to make themselves um a danger on the roads so I, I think you know it's really important that people are punished if they are uh, a danger on the roads, especially if somebody that's you know really going out of their way, and we hear about those sorts of things um, sometimes uh, with with um, with drinking or people that have gone on binges and things like that. Everybody wants to remove that. So, yeah, look, I think um, everyone's in agreement on the objective here. We we don't. No one wants. Uh, people like you say no one wants people that are impaired by drugs and alcohol driving on the road everyone wants that right everyone wants an effective enforcement regime um, but it, it, it has to be just right it has to be just in the way that it's you know I, I, I think that the problem that we have really is that the government knows that there's problems with this technology but it's sort of well you know there's limitations but we have to do something um, and so they're going ahead with it anyway, even though it has these limitations. And from our point of view, if the technology doesn't isn't suitable for purpose by itself, you know, maybe in conjunction with something else, it's fine, right? So, you know, maybe the technology plus an impairment test is is fine. But the the idea that people who aren't impaired are getting pinged 
is uh, unacceptable from my point of view. And I think if, if you talk to people in the community and tell them how this testing regime actually works, um, most people say, well, that's, that's not really acceptable. You know, if the, if the, if the blood alcohol uh, testing worked like that, there would, be, there would be riots in the street. You know, imagine if you, if you got picked up on a Monday morning because you had a drink on Friday night. Like, it's just, it's just crazy. No one would accept that. It's and exactly the same with cannabis testing. It's not acceptable. And in fact, um, if you go and have a look back through the uh, records here in Victoria when the roadside breath testing was being introduced... That is what happened. When, when this first came along, people were, people, I mean, people were getting drunk and driving a lot. Um, probably anybody that's, um, I, I don't remember this, but if I speak to my parents, they have memories of, uh, uh, of friends and, and, and their parents. Um, uh, just, you know, everybody just used to drink and drive a little bit. So there was a, a bit of a furore when, when this first got introduced and it took a little while um, to develop, you know, what level the, the BAC 0.05 in Victoria. It took time and it took debate to get to this point, but we did it and we looked for the evidence and we, um, you know, brought the community along. And it's been the opposite with this roadside drug testing scheme. It's been an expectation that they can sort of ride off the coattails of prohibition and, and anti-drug rhetoric um, instead of instead of road safety, instead of trying to prove yeah. that this is going to make the road safer. Yeah, I mean, look, enforcement is just one part of the puzzle. What's been really successful with the blood alcohol testing is not really the enforcement, but the cultural shift that's happened. You know, if you go to a party and get drunk and then get, you know, pick your keys up and go to your car, you can almost be certain that someone at the party will apply social pressure to you to say, do you really think that's a good idea, right? And any responsible friend would say that to you. They say, you know, is that a good idea if you go and drive right now? And you have this sort of social pressure, right? And that only exists because people accept the facts around it. They accept that, you know, driving while you're drunk is really dangerous. They accept that the testing on, that the police do is related to impairment and that there is this social buy-in. Now, with drug testing, the, the problem is is that, you know, people aren't impaired and they're getting picked up and then you can end up with this lack of trust in the way that the system works. You know, if someone gets charged with this, you don't think necessarily that they're an irresponsible person because they might be a very responsible person with a very good driving record that just happens to have smoked uh, cannabis a few days before they drive, before they drove, and they get picked up. And you know, if someone gets picked up under this regime, are they irresponsible and doing the wrong thing? You know, I don't know. Like, it's it's hard to tell because uh, we don't trust the way that it's um, being done. So. I, uh, yeah, there, there definitely needs to be improvements in the system. David, thank you very much for chatting to us today about this important issue. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> David Limbrick uh, is a member of the Upper House in the Victorian Parliament, uh, also from the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, and talking to, the, to us there about roadside drug testing. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au
www.radiopublic.com.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. Yeah, I know that's hard to catch. Uh, you're driving right now or on the dunny or out gardening or um, somewhere where there isn't a pen and all this good stuff you hear is good but how to remember. Well, if you do the social media thing, then um, that's why we kind of try to remember sometimes. We're on Facebook and Twitter, all those who's it's and what's it's. Do find us there. This is in Psychedelia, and we've just been through a whirlwind discussion on Victoria's roadside drug testing program, uh, pretty much highlighting the urgent need for reform and review of this program. You've heard the voices of member for the Legislative Council for the Reason Party, Fiona Patton, member of the Legislative Council for the Liberal Democrats, David Limbrick, Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, Greg Denham, and also uh, the voice of PhD student uh, who is researching roadside drug testing with the University of Sydney, Thomas Arkell. Hey, how's it going? You're listening to 3CR Radical Radio. On the line now, I have Letitia Wilkinson from MRAC, which is the Medically Supervised Injecting Room Residence Action Committee. Came out of meetings that were held by Yarra City Councillor Stephen Jolly uh, in the city of Yarra. Letitia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about what uh, MRAC's uh, position is. What, what are you guys asking for? Yeah, absolutely. What we're asking for is um, is the relocation of the current um, MSIR out of um, its its location, which is in a highly dense residential area. Um, adjacent to a primary school and it's actually in the same um, land as the um, community health centre where it has maternal health services as well as the um, the elderly use it for their GP and, and other services. So you had a meeting, another community meeting this week. Um, how, how did that go? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, look, it's actually it's, it was our actual first resident meeting. Um, well over 100 people attended. It was ex- it was extremely uh, calm thought thought out, um, well-received uh, meeting, um, and where we really updated people on what is, who are we? There's been a lot of um, sort of misinformation on what we're about and what we're trying to achieve, and and um, and we're updating them on um, on you know what what we we need their help from. And what's the sort of feedback you're getting from the community so far? What, what yeah, look, it's actually. Yeah, look, it's a mix of everything, um, but we have a huge support, which is really good, uh, which is really lovely. Um, what we did focus on on uh, when Tuesday night was actually t- letting those people um, know what we're about and also inform them of our, you know, what is our, why, why do we want it relocated? What really is our case for relocation? So we're about um, a little over halfway through the two-year trial period uh, that was set for MSIR, and they've just moved into the new uh, purpose-built centre um, as part of the uh, North Richmond Community Health Centre. Um, do, do you know how, I, I mean, I suppose you, you, your group will be lobbying uh, at the end of that trial that perhaps it should be in a, in a different location. Um, so you're not saying that you don't want it in that community. Absolutely. You're just concerned about the, the amenity with yeah. the primary school very close by. And uh, it is a yeah, highly abs- residential area. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and look, the reasons for that is while, um, uh, while, the users are actually purchasing their um, the drugs in and uh, around the MSIR. That is beside a school. That is in a highly dense residential area, and it is in a, it, it's around a community health centre. So while there's a lot of drug dealing and drug behaviour, um, just getting the drugs, and and while they're then allowed to leave the room in um, a, a drug affected state, that that does just cause a lot of concern for those very close around. 
So do you have any ideas on where a better location might be? Yeah, look, no, that's really not our role to tell to tell the state government where the location should be. But what we really want to um, make it very clear to the state government is there are restrictions of, of services like these and they really need to be um, thought through and considered. Yeah, so the I suppose the only other example that we can go to is the uh, Sydney Injecting Centre, mm-hmm. which is in uh, King's Cross. Um, Correct. It, it is a residential area there from what I understand, but it's much more um, tucked away and I believe there are conditions on how close it could be to things like primary schools. Um, do you know much yeah. about the, the location of, of, of Sydney or have you had, had a yes, look at Yes, look, we have, yeah, that was the first thing. So um, many, of us, many of us did attend the sessions before it was opened and they did, um, a lot of the comments that we did get from those that were talking was in relation to Sydney, the success of Sydney. So that was the first thing we did. We said, well, what what is it, how, where is it in Sydney and why is it so, what is so different and it is actually when you have a look at it it's a commercial zone um and the housing estates are a long way away uh, uh, sorry not a long way away it's um certainly not under their doorsteps uh and also the uh, school is the closest school is around 700 meters away and the police uh, station is 200 meters away so if you compare that to where it is here um we have um 800 meters to the closest um, police station and adjacent which is 40 min- 40 meters from um from a primary school so and it is a a residential zoned area so just finally Letitia I know that there and you mentioned at the top that some people haven't understood what you're about I know mm-hmm. that there's also the uh, Victoria Street Drug Solutions Group which yeah, um, was uh, 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 instrumental in getting the trial up in the first place did you want to speak to any of these do you feel like there's controversies do you feel like mm-hmm. maybe there's controversies where really you're all agreeing with yeah each other on most we are we are and that's I suppose that's the biggest um, the biggest thing we're struggling to understand is like why can't we work together you know we have never been against the injecting room um, and and they will admit that they were not prepared for it as well um, so I think um, ideally we could all work together and say hey you know it is working it is saving lives but the impact to the surrounds while it is where while it is where it is and how it is operating how it's operating it's actually just too high risk um, and let's actually support each other and have a relocation so it's actually successful everyone wants to see it succeed but unfortunately while the users are leaving the room um, and while dealers are coming to this place to deal, then that, as I said, it's just it's, it's just too much um, impact on its surrounds. And uh, before we uh, go, uh, if anybody wants any more information, where can they go? Yeah, look, I, I do encourage everyone to um, actually look at our website. It's www.mratgroup.com.au. Um, and that's really, you know, please read about us. Please read our um, case for relocation. And we do ask that people actually contact us and we want to meet with them if they do have, if they do want a challenge on the case to relocate. We're really open to, to that dialogue. And that's M-R-A-C Group. Thank you very much, Letitia. I think you're right. The most important part here is that um, maintaining the community discussion is the only way that these issues will be overcome. So thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome. Thank you, Nick. This has been In Psychedelia on 3CR, and we're just about out of time for this afternoon's show. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in to our um, special looking at the roadside drug testing program and the growing 
um, need for a review of the technology that's used and the uh, and the laws that are currently enforced, uh, especially considering the uh, the problems it seems to be causing uh, as it moves forward. Uh, we'll be back next week from 2pm, same place on 3CR. Find us on social media and the website and subscribe to the podcast while you're at it. Thank you to everyone who made today's program possible, all the uh, interviewees who joined us. Queering the Air is up next. Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. This is in Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.